So welcome back, everyone. And if it works for you to have your video on, I love to see people as I'm speaking, if that can work for you. Again, if you're just coming back, if, if it works to have your video on, that's very, very, it's nice for me to be able to see people. So today in the United States, and I realize not everyone here is, is uh, in the United States, it's the 4th of July. Uh, I don't know if you can hear, but there are the sounds of fireworks which probably are a little bit in the background, maybe they're at times uh, outside my window. And I wanted to give a talk that is really appropriate for the 4th of July. And I've actually um, worn red and blue and a little bit of white. The theme of my talk is Dharma, which means the teachings about awakening, the teachings and practices about awakening, Dharma and democracy. It's really asking, how do we make connections between our spiritual practice and our participation society in a society founded although with all sorts of limits and contradictions, founded on the promise of democracy, freedom, and justice. How do we connect those two dimensions of spiritual practice and participation in democracy? Could we imagine a, an evolution in which we have a spiritually grounded democracy? What would that look like? You know, what would it look like to combine, we might say, inner and outer freedom? Not just have freedom be a matter of inner work, not have to just have that freedom, you know, by going away from the society. But what would it be like to combine inner and outer freedom? To combine, we might say, Independence Day with Interdependence Day. What would that be like? And the great teacher Thich Nhat Hanh pointed to this possibility in his uh, book, Being Peace, which he published in 1987. This is what he said. There are important values in Western society, such as the scientific way of looking at things, the spirit of free inquiry, and democracy. If there is an encounter between Buddhism and these values, humankind will have something very new and very exciting. And I agree with him that there is that um, possibility of connection, and there are a lot of um, resonances. You know, the deepest teaching that we have from Buddhism is that our basic nature is inherently awake. And that our basic nature is shared by all human beings. And in, indeed, in some past Buddhist traditions, this was also brought to other sentient beings, not just humans, that our deep nature is one of wisdom, of a love and compassion, which extend to all beings, and a skillful action in our, in our lives. This is a deep nature which goes beyond our own individuality, actually beyond time and space, beyond life and death, and connects all of us. And here are some passages from, from the Buddha 
on this deepest dimension that awakening opens to, which I think also shows how it is profoundly connective of all human beings and indeed of all beings. From the Buddha, this is the deathless, namely the liberation of the mind through non-clinging. And then a passage which probably many of you know from the text on loving-kindness or metta, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. This is uh, where awakening goes and, and what we can actually taste. Uh, maybe not all the time, but we can taste it at times. From the Tibetan tradition, uh, one of the great teachers, Longchenpa, from the 14th century, awakened mind is by nature primordially pure. The true nature of phenomena is such that there is nothing that comes and goes. Rather, the sun and moon of utter lucidity arise when one rests naturally in the tr spacious expanse that is the true nature of phenomena. It's pointing to awakening, the goal, we might say, of Dharma. And how does that connect to democracy? You know, I've given some pointers that there's that emphasis on interdependence and a kind of equality. But there are a lot of ways that this connection is difficult. You know, one of the ways is that there's been a sense of religion or spirituality in the United States, and I think, I think maybe more in the United States than in other Western countries, of religion as something inherently private. We don't bring it into the public sphere, you know, maybe except if we're on the Supreme Court. Uh, okay, I won't, I won't go further into that. Um, but we don't, we don't bring religion into the public sphere. Uh, you know, even as that's sometimes done by, by some. Again, I think it, that did come in with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And in some ways that can be seen as progress because previously sort of religious dogma was controlling society. So, part, but part of what makes this connection between Dharma and democracy hard is the way that religion and spirituality are often framed um, as private, something we don't, you know, we keep to ourselves. So that makes it hard. And this is also, I think, connected with a main way, even that Buddhist practice has been interpreted in the West. In a lot of mainstream centers, I think it's changing some, but uh, the dominant mode of uh, spiritual practice is meditating quietly on one's own. You know, which, of course, I love, and I've done a lot of it, but it has its limits if that's the only form of practice. I'll come back to that point. You know, because there are some socially engaged approaches, but they're not predominant. And, you know, it's also clear that um, democracy at the current time in the United States, and I think this is true in many countries, is in crisis. There's great polarization. Um, you know, after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the United States has parallels right now with the way it was in the 1850s before the Civil War, when we're, you know, we're effectively having two kinds of uh, laws, you know, like in the 1850s, there were slave states and free states. And now we have states where abortion is permitted and states where abortion is not permitted, a radical polarization, you know, and we can, we can see this in, in many, many ways. You see it in the January 6th hearings, you know, about the insurrection, and often there's a lack of communication, a lack of connection. There's a, a way 
that democracy is really being both uh, fractured and threatened. And there's even, there even are, are very polarized senses of what's real. You know, you can see that with COVID, you can see that with climate, you can see that with views about the 2020 election and so forth. Um, not a shared, not a shared reality. And many of the main institutions of democracy are being threatened, including the voting system. And, you know, right now, the, the day before Roe v. Wade was overturned, they had a poll uh, about the Supreme Court, and only 25% of those responding basically thought Supreme Court was doing a good, good job. One day before the announcement, it's the lowest degree, really, the uh, lowest percentage in the 50 years they've been doing the polling. So we could say that many of our main institutions are fraying. Congress is polarized and very, very ineffective. And, you know, there's, you know, the nature of polarization is there's a lack of connection, often a fear of those on the other side, lack of communication, and so, um, and an inability to deal with fundamental issues. And there's a paralysis in relationship to dealing really with um, climate issues, guns and violence, uh, racism, and so forth. Very, very much a paralysis. And this is, this is true in other countries as well. Um, and so, at, you know, we can get rather... Um, depressed about all this and negative. That's where I think it's very important in these times to have a vision of possibilities, to have a vision. And I think, like Thich Nhat Hanh said, this sense of connection of the Dharma, and in this case with democracy, can really give us a beautiful vision that can hold us in, in difficult times. How many people have felt in these times sometimes depressed or wanting to withdraw or nothing's going to help. How many people have had those thoughts at times, right? I think that's common, right? And so part of what I'm pointing to is when we have a vision of something else that's possible, and this will come up a lot, when we have that kind of vision, it really helps us with the despair or the depression or the pulling away you know, and can, you know, can help us to just making our practice personal. You know, you know, there's that line that probably some of you know in uh, Proverbs, I think in the, in the Jewish Bible, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And so I think I'll come back to that. There's a, there's a really a need for a vision, which has often been carried by poets and artists, musicians, and, you know, visionary activists like uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, um, people like, you know, uh, Walt Whitman, writing the great poet Walt Whitman in the 1870s. He was seeing a lot of the tendencies, which we can still see today. And he said, what we need, quote, is a sublime and serious religious democracy Again, 1870s, we have frequently printed the word democracy, yet I cannot too often repeat that it is a word the real gist of which still sleeps quite unawakened. It is a great word whose history remains unwritten because that history has yet to be enacted. So I'm going to come back to that sense of vision. And I'll actually talk about the vision of democracy historically, and the vision of Dharma. You know, the, we know that there was an original vision, you know, that dates back to, what, 1776. And we know that it had plenty of flaws, distortions, and contradictions. But still, at the time, it seemed to be something new in the world, the notion that there could be a society based on the equality of all people. It's in the Declaration of Independence, even if it was from the start, not really, uh, not really practiced, but it was there. 
self-determined nation by the citizens rather than by kings and queens to maximize individual and collective happiness, you know, to carry out um, an experiment in democracy that hadn't been pre previously developed. You know, it's interesting to read uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and see him talk about this. Uh, this is uh, from one of his speeches in 1961. He said, in, a real, in the real sense, America is essentially a dream, a dream as yet unfulfilled. It is a dream of a land where people of all races, all nationalities, and all creeds can live together as brothers and sisters. The substance of the dream is expressed in these sublime words, words lifted to cosmic proportions, and he quotes the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And he goes on and quotes it further. And so, for King, it was a place where one could develop what he called the beloved community, and to welcome strangers, to welcome the oppressed, to join the communities, you know, symbolized by the Statue of Liberty, which was originally known as Liberty Enlightening the World, much like uh, the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin, who, she who hears the cries of the world. You know, and it's helpful to remember this vision, which again is very imperfectly realized, that you know, my own uh, grandparents uh, came by the Statue of Liberty, fleeing violence and oppression, and they came to the United States. They were welcomed with the words that were on the Statue of Liberty from Emma Lazarus. Listen to these words. It's from the 19th century. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. So there's a vision there, isn't there? There's something to remember, and I'll come back to this because it's been affirmed even by people who see all the problems, all the contradictions, you know, particularly in the African-American tradition. It's seen, you know, though that vision is not jettisoned because of the contradictions or the imperfections. So I want to point to the importance of remembering that and attempting to realize it yet more fully. And then the vision of Dharma, the vision of the teachings and practices for awakening. There's also a vision. Again, we can sometimes forget that. You know, the vision of Dharma goes towards awakening, goes towards universal awakening, towards universal compassion. And there's an emphasis on, as I mentioned, on the, equality, the ultimate equality and potential of all human beings. And so there is implicitly a requirement to move away from that which puts that sense of equality in, in question. In fact, I think as many of you know, the Buddha established his community in contradiction with the caste system of India, right? He said, you cannot bring the caste system into our community. I think that's important to remember. So there was already, you know, a kind of intersection of teachings of awakening and we might say uh, the development of a, um, what? The development of a democratic society or an ideal society. You know, many of you know that uh, at the time of the Buddha, there were four different uh, castes in India. They were meant to separate out the, you know, the people who had invaded India, what we now call India, mostly coming from what's now Turkey and Iran. And they were lighter skinned and they 
wanted to separate themselves from the darker-skinned indigenous people of what we now call India. So they set up the caste system. There were the, there were the people who were the, the priests, the so-called Brahmins, who were able to study the text. There were the warriors. There were the, those who were merchants and farmers, the third class. And then there were those who were in the lowest class, which were the indigenous people, the darker-skinned people. And then there were also the outcasts, those who were, had, who were outside of all the castes, who had um, you know, committed violations of some kind and were considered impure. And so there was a whole system. And we can imagine that the Buddha was most likely, we don't know for sure, most likely a highly privileged, lighter-skinned member of society who was named part of the upper class. And he rejected it and said, I'm going to set up a kind of counter-society, and if you want to come into this, you can't bring in your sense of caste. Everyone here is equal. He said that caste has no basis in reality. He said, among individual human beings, among their bodies, there are no distinct features that distinguish them. Any way that we try to distinguish different people is merely a matter of arbitrary convention. That's the Buddha 2,600 years ago. And so there's something parallel, I think, to the vision of a democratic society. Again, imperfectly realized. The Buddha had to be convinced to allow uh, women to be uh, monastics. You know, and you look at Buddhist societies over the years, and there, there, there are issues. There are plenty of there are plenty of problems and ways that there has been uh, patriarchy and so forth. But there is that vision. You know, and then in that society, when you have that society, then the vision is to train to train for awakening. We train by development in three areas, wisdom, meditation, and ethics. You know, we train in seeing clearly the nature of things. We train in mindfulness and concentration and loving kindness and so forth. And we train in becoming, bringing this out into our lives. Into, uh, we train in um, skillful speech. We train and um, <clears throat> we train in non-harming. We train in not taking that which is not given. We train in being skillful with sexuality with, um, and with uh, substances which shift consciousness. And so it's very, um, yeah, it's important, to, it's important to see that vision, you know, that there, that there is a vision, a powerful vision, for both democracy, imperfectly realized, and for Dharma, you know, which, you know, pretty much was, has been developed mostly just in a uh, monastic setting, historically, and it's been widened, you know, more recently. It's also important to see that there are shadows of both democracy and Dharma, and part of the, you know, part of the vision is to work through the distortions, the contradictions, the problems, what we can call the shadow, that which is not seen clearly. The shadow, the, um, the ways that there are problems and contradictions with the vision I just named. And so we know probably many, many of the shadow material of democracy, right? We know that in uh, 1789, who was able to be equal? Well, it was a small group. It was white men with property. Those who were deemed white and those who had property. So already we can see that there are problems with the way that democracy has been built on the basis of racism and sexism and classism. We can already see that, right? Right from the beginning. And um, so a lot of the history of democracy 
is to see that more clearly and develop. And we can see in all of the areas I named, there's been uh, significant progress at times. Not complete, but there's been a movement. You know, one way that we can really point uh, with more precision, maybe, is to use the analysis that um, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave. He's, he talked about the three primary social forces that distort, we might say, the vision of democracy. And he named poverty, racism, and militarism. At this point, we probably can add uh, the climate crisis, right? And he talked about each of them. He said, poverty stands in the way of the American dream. He said, if someone doesn't have a job or an income, that person neither has life nor liberty nor the possibility for the pursuit of happiness. And he said, with, when there are glaring contrasts between the rich and the poor, there's a violation of the commitment to justice. And we find this as early as the beginning of the 19th century. Thomas Jefferson, you know, for all his contradictions, uh, he said in 1816, I hope that we shall crush in its birth the aristocracy of our moneyed corporations, which dare already to challenge our government to a trial by strength and bid defiance to the laws of our country. That's Thomas Jefferson, 1816. Or Walt Whitman, again, talking about the basis for poverty, in the 1870s, he said, he talked about how the self-centered pursuit of wealth poisons the vision of democracy. And of course, we can see in many ways, and we probably know very well, how racism and the near genocide of Native peoples you know, which we can probably call the core wounds of the society, maybe of the continent, uh, you know, get in the way of democracy. Some of you know that uh, Frederick Douglass, the former slave, gave a very famous Fourth of July talk in 1852. How many of you know of that or have, have heard that? Yeah, some of you. 1852, his talk was called what to the slave is the 4th of July? And this is part of what he said. You know, he started off by talking about how he really believed in the Declaration of Independence. He started talking about he really believed in the vision. But then he also went on to say, then he was giving this talk, 1852, in Rochester, New York, the blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. The fourth, this 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. What is to the American slave is your 4th of July? To the slave, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. He says that. We'll come back later to him, because despite that, he will believe in the vision. I'll come back to that near the end. And again, we know that disparity between the democratic vision and racism manifested in slavery, Jim Crow, all sorts of institutional uh, racism related to housing, work, healthcare, police, all sorts of things. Also, you know, the exclusionary politics, uh, policies towards the Chinese and other ethnic groups and the stealing of land and centuries of violence towards Native Americans. And again, 
very much uh, still with us. And King also talked about militarism as a direct threat to the vision of democracy. He said, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. It's a strong one, isn't it? A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual depth. And again, he was echoing, this is Thomas Jefferson, 1791. If there be any principle more deeply rooted in the mind of every American, it is that we should have nothing to do with conquest. 1791. There also are shadow, shadows, we might say, to Dharma. The vision of Dharma sounds beautiful, but there's also shadow material. We see this a lot in ourselves. We see that continually stuff comes up, that the Dharma path is one of purification, noticing when we're not mindful, wise, or compassionate. We see our own spiritual self-images. We see our own stuff. And we can often see the relationship between our stuff and society's stuff. Another shadow that we can say that makes it hard to connect um, uh, the vision of Dharma with democracy, I mentioned earlier, it's how often Dharma is, is understood very individualistically, you know, focused on how I can become more peaceful or more centered or whatever. And I remember talking quite a while ago when I would be in Thailand talking with Sulak Sivaraksha, one of the, uh, you know, one of the teachers who teaches engaged Buddhism. And he said he was fearful that Buddhism in the United States would become a plaything of the middle class. It would not really, it would just be something to get a little more peaceful and that it wouldn't really be connected with these uh, larger issues. I also heard that uh, talking with, um, I remember with uh, Enrique Dussel from Mexico, originally from Argentina, one of the great liberation theologians who said the same thing. He thought there was a very good chance that, you know, meditation would just be something for individual betterment people living in their own cocoons. And that's a danger. And uh, the great translator, Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, remarked on the same thing. He, he said that there are tendencies among Western Buddhists to be caught in what he called middle-class blindness and self-centeredness. He, to quote from him, they were oblivious, they are oblivious to the vast catastrophic suffering that daily overwhelms three-fourths of the world's population. To help free beings from suffering today, therefore requires that we counter the systemic embodiments of greed, hatred, and delusion. We would say not just the individual ones. You know, and there have been some developments. I've been part of some of them developing what we call a socially engaged Buddhism, you know, to make those connections. You know, and some, we can see some of those tendencies in uh, what, is sometimes, you know, some to the way that mindfulness is being brought into larger society. There are a lot of benefits, but there also are issues. There are ways that uh, it's being brought in as a way to get more peaceful, more, you know, just more, um, you know, more privately peaceful, you know. Um. <clears throat> and I, I remember talking with one teacher who was bringing to teaching mindfulness in corporate settings. And I asked her, uh, how do you bring in ethics, which is part of Buddhist training, into what you do? And she said, huh? Meaning that it wasn't part of the training. You know? And the last shadow we could say that historically, many Buddhist societies have been complicit with the oppression of their societies. You know, that they, you know, um, Gary Snyder, the poet, the Buddhist poet, said in 1961 uh, that um, institutional Buddhism has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies 
of whatever political system it found itself under. This can be death to Buddhism because it is death to any meaningful function of compassion. And we can see this sometimes. One example is the way that Zen in Japan between 1900 and 1950 was deeply embedded in Japanese fascism. You know, I remember reading a passage where one Zen teacher was, was guiding the military. He said, you know, when you march, just march. When you shoot, just shoot. This is shadow material, right? And we can see that. that. You can see that in a number of different societies. So this all being said, how do we move forward? How do we renew the vision? What's helpful? And I'll, I'll close with this. How do we stay in touch with our visions? And I think we want to, you know, realize that this is difficult. We can get, again, get a little depressed, you know, that we can stay in touch, I think, with the vision of America. This is the African-American poet Langston Hughes, 1938. He said, let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that anyone be crushed by one above. Let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath. But opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. Oh yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. There's still that hope. So how do we stay in touch with that vision? You know, I think we have to partly practice with our pain or our grief or our despair or our numbness, right? Again, how many people have felt that in the last year or two? Some of those qualities, you know, very much there, you know, I've, in some of my teaching the last two weeks, a lot of people talking about grief, you know, and I think it's very important to have places to talk about this together in practice. I had one group I was in where people talked about their own experiences with abortion, including men who had partners who had had abortions and, you know, the meaning of it, you know, and it was very helpful just to air things, to talk about a lot of what we, what we need are actually groups where people can talk together. You know, I, I, I've worked with a number of groups where you can bring up these kind of, kind of issues. Um, this is freeing, you know, to be with a group. Um, you know, I remember doing that and sometimes being, you know, in a kind of, uh, what, um, kind of a numb place and having a chance to air things. I particularly worked a lot with Joanna Macy and some of her work can really bring out a way that people can air their emotions in a group and something gets freed up. And Joanna Macy did say, she said, of all the dangers we face from climate chaos to nuclear war, none is so great as the deadening of our responses. So we have to take responsibility for working, practicing with our own, you know, fear, grief, numbness, despair, all of that, you know. And another way to stay in touch, I think, is to stay in touch with the vision of both democracy and dharma experientially. In terms of dharma, can I, can I go to my own depths? Can I touch uh, a metta for all beings at times? Can I touch that expansive love? When we touch this regularly, we know the vision is true, and we know that it can be there for everyone. When I can touch this vast awareness and rest in it, I can know something. It helps me not to get, not to get stuck. This is from uh, Ram Dass. When I am loving awareness, I am aware of everything outside, but pulling into the heart, the spiritual heart, brings me to loving awareness. Loving awareness is in the moment. In the spiritual heart, there is peace, contentment, and compassion, joy, and wisdom. I think it's our responsibility to keep touching that. You look at the life of Dr. King, he had his ways of continually touching joy that helped him through, through the hard times. Keeping the vision going, I promised I'd return to Frederick Douglass. At the end of his 4th of July talk, this is what he said. 
Allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have presented, I do not despair of this country. There are forces in operation which much inevitably work the downfall of slavery. Again, writing and talking in 1852. <clears throat> I they therefore leave off where I began with hope, while drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence and the great principles it contains, and the genius of American institutions, my spirit is also cheered by many of the tendencies of our age. This is, again, Frederick Douglass. And, you know, maybe I'll, I'll finish by naming a few other things that are really important. We need, in different ways, to address, you know, the wounds and the crimes of our country, the shadow material, we need something like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the United States. Anyone ready to serve on that committee? Okay. Very good. We need that, like, like they had in South Africa. We need something like that, you know, connected with restorative justice. And we, um, we also very much need all the resources of our spiritual practice to stay centered and balanced in difficult times. And we need to be able also to transform our institutions. You know, maybe starting locally, what would it look like to have this vision of a spiritual democracy? What would a school look like? What would a uh, neighborhood garden look like? What would healthcare look like? To work, to develop the visions, to transform the society, you know? And, um, you know, all sorts of possibilities for that. You know, we can learn from, you know, people who've written about this, who've done experiments, who've done visionary scholarship. So we need, we need to explore that. And we need uh, all sorts of practices that can help us make the vision real on an everyday level. You know, we need the practices that can transform difficult emotions. I've been teaching a lot recently about the, the crucial need in our society right now for empathy, compassion, and being able to work with differences. That capacity is not there much. You know, there was, there was um, many people who I've, who I've heard from say that what might be most important now is the quality of empathy. You know, a, a columnist in the San Francisco Chronicle in 2016, in October, right before the election, he said, I argue that the lack of empathy is the most pressing issue in America, and it's more compelling than national security threats, bad trade deals, unpaid taxes, and deleted emails. How can we really um, cultivate empathy? Empathy is the key to working across differences. So I'll close, and we can have some discussion. I'll close with some more from what the poet, really the poet and visionary, Gary Snyder, wrote in 1961 about this connection of uh, the vision of Dharma and the vision, we might say, of democracy. He said, the mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into our nature. We need both. They are both contained in the tr traditional three aspects of the Dharma path. These are the, this is what I mentioned. Wisdom, meditation, and morality or ethics. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind and love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over again until wisdom and love becomes the mind that you live in. Ethics or morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action ultimately towards the true community or Sangha of all beings. So thank you for listening to my 4th of July talk and I hope it resonated. Let's take a moment just to sit quietly and see what may have resonated with you. <clears throat> Maybe there's something you want to share, a question to ask. Let's take a minute just to sit in reflection.
And so we have some time for um, discussion, for asking a question. You can do that by the raised hand function. You <clears throat> could also possibly send a chat to Ileana. And if you have your video on, I can actually see everyone here. So if you raise your hand, I can see you. So um, you could do it that way as well. Looks like uh, uh, Robert, please. Did you have something, Robert? Looks like, uh, Ileana, can we unmute Robert? There we go. Okay. Thank you. Good to meet you anyway. <laughs> okay. Any, anything to share or ask about further clarification? Okay. How to cultivate the ethics piece. Um, in, um, in the teachings, you know, many of us are familiar with the basic five ethical precepts for lay people. And, uh, you know, briefly, those are non-harming, not taking that which is not given, and then care in areas which often get us into difficulty, sexuality, speech, and using substances which have consciousness. I think one of the very central areas to develop is wise speech, you know, something I teach on a lot. And wise speech is a wonderful way to bring out our practice into the world. You know, and wise speech, as the Buddha taught it, has four basic guidelines to, to speak and be truthful, be helpful, speak out of a kind heart, even if we're saying something difficult, and have good timing. You have to have all those together. You can be truthful and helpful and uh, uh, have a good heart. And if you have bad timing, it's a mess. So uh, we can work with skillful speech. There's a lot more that can be said. When we teach wise speech retreats, we have about 30 hours of material. So I've condensed it. And there's also a beautiful way that uh, I've developed with my colleague Orin J. Sofer to develop uh, empathy as a practice where we actually learn to tune in to someone else's um, emotions and what matters for them. And we, something we can practice on a daily basis, you know. Uh, and so, um, you know, that can be something where we learn, where it just becomes a regular practice. I can imagine people who maybe uh, people who live together they have morning practice and they start with a half hour meditation and then they do um, 10 minutes of wise speech practice and, you know, developing empathy. I can imagine that. That's a model of practice that I can imagine that would be really beneficial because right now it tends to be just the meditation, which I love. I've spent, you know, years of my life in meditation. But what would it be like to have a morning routine where you get ready to go out into the world by practicing your speech practice, your empathy practice, and other things. So those are those are key. And then you can also ask about, you know, non-harming. You can ask before you act, am I meeting the ethical precepts? But why speech is very, very central. So I want to really uh, um, give a lot of emphasis to that. And if you're interested, I probably, if you look on the website Dharma Seed, I probably have 10 or 20 talks on wise speech that you can, can look at if you look on the website Dharma Seed under, under my name. Other questions, sharing? And feel free to have what seems like a half-baked question. Don't have to have a, a perfectly developed question. That's important. Okay. Yeah. 
Real people are good to me. Next question? No, just, just joking. Um, yeah, it's, it's important. And I think Spirit Rock is being very cautious. Uh, there have been in-person retreats on the land since last August. So those are going forward with a lot of precautions. There have been a few in-person events that are just for, you know, a day or half a day. Uh, very few of those. I think Spirit Rock's being quite cautious. You know, as I mentioned, I'll be doing a five-day event that'll be in-person at Spirit Rock. So um, I think we're actually beyond, I don't know if I can say beyond the pandemic, but going forward, <clears throat> we're going to go forward with a hybrid model. You know, I think that because we have seen so many benefits from being online. You know, I did a day long in April that had 150 people present from eight different countries, right? And all over, you know, all over North America, had people sometimes from, you know, Mexico, South Africa, you know, many, many countries in Europe. And so I think we're going forward with, with uh, bringing the two together and finding ways to do that. But I think it's still, you know, the pandemic is still happening, certainly where I live. But we can, you know, we, like I said, I'm doing an in-person event that I'm, that's self-organized in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area in, you know, in about a week, actually. Yeah. Other questions? Again, can, can just raise your hand. I should be able to see you. Again, feel free to ask a half-baked question or share something. Okay, Robert, did you have something now? No, okay. <laughs> okay, anyone else? Could just be a question of clarification. Okay, um, or it could be just to share something that's related to the talk, you know, related to the talk. Okay, uh, Joe, please. Yes, you're fine. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, it's a really crucial question. Thank you, Joe. How many can relate to that question? Yeah. It's really crucial question and uh, many levels to it. Um, many levels to a response. Um, one is that um, our practices give us wonderful tools for opening up to what's difficult, what's painful emotionally and so forth. And so we can work with our practices with uh, mindfulness, you know, uh, you know, I once had a retreat where I experienced anger for 10 days in a row for 16 hours a day, right? And I worked with mindfulness. It was at a level where it was workable, you know? And um, I think we have wonderful practices that can help us work with difficult emotions, with reactivity, with being judgmental, 
we need if we're if we're spending time with that, I think we need to also to do practices, whether meditative or otherwise, that are uplifting, that bring joy. You know, so for example, I teach a lot on transforming the judgmental mind. When we go into that territory, it's really going into painful territory. So really crucial to for people I work with to be um, doing practices which are uplifting, maybe loving kindness practice or joy, being with beauty, the beauty of the wilds, and so forth. So um, that's one, you know, I'll probably make four or five suggestions here. That's one. A second is, as I mentioned, particularly in relation to pain-related society, it's really, really helpful to be in groups or in communities and to have ways of processing what's difficult or painful with the group. You know, and I've, again, I've learned so much from uh, a person I regard as a teacher, friend, colleague, Joanna Macy, who's 93 now. And she's developed beautiful, beautiful forms. You can research them online to, you know, to work with uh, the pain that arises in relation to the world. And, you know, I, I use them when I teach. You know, I've, I've uh, taught several retreats on Buddhist practice and transforming racism for people racialized as, as, as white. And uh, we use these practices where, you know, I've done some of them in the South where we have people who have ancestry that goes back to having ancestors who, who own slaves, right? And they're touching the pain and they're doing it in a group and something can get freed up. So that's the second point, being in a group. A third point that I think is going in a little different direction is to look at how much we're taking in. And this probably occurs to most of us. You know, am I taking in too much? Am I getting myself continually upset? You know, what's the balance between being well-informed and taking in too much? You know, how do I work with that? You know, when I, I've sometimes done something like this, I've sometimes done retreats where I still access the internet for some time. And I noticed I had that tendency to want to get the news more than I needed. I, for me, I found half an hour was enough, right? And there was that excitement of learning something new. So I think we can use our mindfulness practice and look at what's my motivation when I get more information or I get this or that, and is, is it beneficial for me? What do I, what's, what's a skillful amount? So that's, 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 a, uh, that's maybe a third point. Um, you know, and then I think then there, I think there are different practices that can be really helpful. I think wise speech practice, developing skill with conflict, something I've been teaching on quite a bit lately, I think is crucial. Uh, skill with differences. Conflict is a tricky word. I like to think of conflict merely as the presence of differences, like a difference of values or objectives. So developing uh, empathy, skillful speech, ability to listen to someone with different views is really crucial. Maybe I'll, I'll stop there. But those are, those are four really core practices. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, others, uh, maybe time for one or two more. Yeah, uh, Nancy. Great, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. 
Ja. 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 Ja, thank you so much Nancy. It really adds a piece that I that I didn't bring in um which is really the um yeah, it's the reality that um all of what I was saying about our present challenges is uh intermixed with certain with levels of trauma. You know, some for more some some have more, some have less, but that really integrating skillful response to trauma has to be there with most of what I said. You know, and I think it is being integrated into our meditation practice. You know, uh a friend, some of you know David Trelevin wrote a book called Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness, which integrates trauma work with uh, the teaching of mindfulness and uh, it also I think can you know be integrated with these groups but I think what widespread training in trauma is really crucial you know I have a friend who does climate work and he takes on uh, who brings together um, Buddhist practices with trauma training in the context of uh, the climate crisis, right? He does trainings with cities and with communities, and that's all needed. So really integrating sensitivity to trauma into all of what we're talking about. So thank you, thank you for adding that piece. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and there's a lot. Gosh, just hearing more news today. I, I just heard it a little while ago, right? It's, gosh. Um, let's finish with, uh, with two things, three things actually. Number one, I want to thank, uh, Ileana for your support. So let's give some, some love, so to speak, uh, to, uh, Ileana, not a traditional Buddhist ritual way to do it, but very good. Thank you, Ileana. And then secondly, Take a moment and just see what may have resonated with you from our time together and how you might want to take this further. What are your next steps? What are any intentions coming out of our evening exploration? What's there for you? Take about a minute now to reflect on what comes next or what follows. Again, it might be just something that came up in the meditation that doesn't have anything to do with the topic, but, and then maybe that's most important for you, but just see what was important from our evening together. And then I want to thank you for allowing me to explore this territory. It's not like, not like most Dharma talks I give, but I thank you for listening and letting me explore this territory, which I think is really important for our, our future. And we'll end with the uh, dedication of merit, traditional ending. May the benefits of our evening be there for us, May they be there for those in our lives, in the circles of our own lives. And then beyond those circles, may we offer the benefit to all other beings. Ultimately, we offer the benefits of our time together to all beings, knowing that this 
knowing that this includes us. So thank you very much. A pleasure to be with you. Would have been nicer in person or hybrid, but there are many people from many places. So feel free, uh, Ileana, can we invite people to uh, unmute and you can say, uh, say whatever you'd like to say, say goodbye, whatever. So feel free to unmute. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Yay, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, until next time. Thank you again, Ileana and Jesse. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.